Welcome to Class 27. Today I start with the noble goal of reaching Lothlorien, but in the end I settle for actually finishing the Council of Elrond and getting as far as Moria. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, we must hurry if we are to reach Lothlorien by the end of class today. I don't expect actually to get very far inside the border, but if we could get up to it, I'd be happy. Um, I wanted to begin today, as I promised we would at the end of class last time, um, with going back to, as Jordan reminded me uh, in the last class, uh, the business about the white light. Um, because this is an interesting point, which I promised months ago we would talk about, and I do want to do that. You may or may not remember in Mythopoeia uh, the lines about this. Where Tolkien says, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. And then, of course, we have Saruman in his, uh, at the beginning of his speech to Gandalf saying something which sounds kind of similar. Uh, and he calls himself Saruman of many colors, and then uh, Gandalf says, as Derek pointed out last time, I liked white better. And he sneers, white, it serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed, the white page can be overwritten, and the white light can be broken. And Gandalf's response, of course, is, in which case it is no longer white, and he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. Now, both are talking about taking white light and breaking it into rainbow hues. One in a plainly negative sense. The poem seems to be speaking of it in a positive sense. How do we understand this? What's the difference between these two kinds of refracted light that we see? I don't know how many of you have the poem in front of you. Let me read those lines again to you so you can have them in your head as you're answering. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Nick? Oh, I'll see you my grand. Okay. Derek, go ahead. I think it kind of shows that like, um, any, that, like, anything can be, like, positive or negative and that, like, um, I guess the people are uh, our man in Mythopoeia is, like, trying to, like, share it with others, and Saruman wants it for himself. Okay, good. I agree that one difference in the two of them is that in the Mythopoeia reference, um, it is a very much an outward-focused thing, whereas with Saruman, it is an inward-focused thing. That seems to me a very fair place to start. Tony? Maybe, like, pure white is a, a starting place or, or a guide for all the other colors. The other colors, they look white leave them, or, and then, in Saruman's case, white is a bad thing. Right. In, in the poem, right, it, you start with the single white light, which is then refracted um, through the individual crystals, which are, which are the human sub-creators. Right, so white light is... Well, what is white light? Yeah, no, but I mean, like... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all of them, Right. It contains all of those colors together. When you combine everything perfectly, not with pigment, but with light, you get white, right? Um, Saruman is taking it apart, right? The white light can be broken, he says. I mean, the, the use of that word broken is a one pretty good indication of telling us where we are. The word splintered 
that he uses in the poem seems potentially, I mean, one could imagine using that in a, in a neg- with a negative connotation. Um, I mean, what's the difference between splintering and breaking, after all? But again, it's about the focus of it. It's about the purpose behind it. More. Ben, what were you thinking? Um, I was just going to say that the way he uses it structurally is, is very different. Um, man is the splintered light, whereas Saruman is physically breaking the light. Presumably man as the refracted light is part of God's plan in Mythopoeia, whereas Saruman is specifically deviating from the plan and, and enacting his own will on it. Yes. White light in the Mythopoeia sense is not attainable by... I mean. I, Human beings are not, cannot be transmitters of white light because they are finite. They are themselves limited, and so you know, are, they're only equipped to refract you know, their particular wavelength. Right? And now, when you combine all of those works, you get something which derives from the original and, com- and complete whole uh, that was the original white light. Um, but yeah, what, what, what Saruman is doing... It's very different. Kelly? Um, in Mythopoeia, man is sort of describing a particular aspect of the white light, and um, Saruman is physically trying to act upon the light. Yes. Good. 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 Marta? Well, I think that uh, I agree with everything that's been said, but also um, Saruman is trying to literally dissect it. He doesn't trust anymore in the white light. He doesn't, he doesn't accept that it simply is and simply good. While Gandalf does trust in it. It's kind of like well, why are hobbits so special in this story? Well, Gandalf just trusts that they are, but Saruman in that situation would try to find the exact characteristic as to why they're special. And that's, I think, the big dividing line. Yeah, yeah, he... Saruman wants to know. Remember what does he say are the high, the high and ultimate goals? Three things, His little, the little Saruman troika there. Knowledge. Knowledge. Rule. Order. Well, knowledge pr- plus rule equals breaking things to find out what they are, potentially. Um, certainly, if done if done inappropriately, and the, certainly the implication his attitude is a really is a really bad one here. Um, his attitude towards towards the light itself. I mean, and Gandalf emphasizes, in which case it's no longer white. Once you've broken it, it's no longer white. Once you've dyed it, it's no longer white. Once you've overwritten the white page, it's not white anymore. Um, and his emphasis there is, although when human beings in Mythopoeia become the vehicles for the white light, they become transmitters of a portion of that light. With Saruman, when you turn to the white light and you try to take it apart to dominate over it, to assert yourself over it, I am master of this thing and I desire knowledge which will make me further master of it. I want to understand it. I want to know Wanting to know, wanting to understand seems to be potentially at least a fine thing, not a, not a bad thing. But when you, again, when you, when you take knowledge and you add rule to it and you do them in the same, and, 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 and hey, even if you're trying to impose order, right? Order from your own perspective, order based upon your own self-oriented designs, what you end up getting is something that is, that is completely different. And it's, as Gandalf says, no longer white. It's no longer pure. It's no longer a good thing because you have tainted it. When you dye a white thing, when you overwrite a white page, this doesn't mean that writing is bad, that dyeing is bad, that refraction is bad, but when this is what you're doing, you have sullied it. You have tainted it with your own desire, with your own desire to, of mastery. And that's, 
a bad thing. If you look at the context in Mythopoeia, it's interesting because he's talking about dominion here. I mean, the context is actually, uh, it makes it even more relevant. If uh, we go up a little bit, line 55, though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act, not to worship the great artifact, not his to worship the great artifact, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered. He talks about the lordship of man and how man still has appropriate lordship. It is not the place of mankind to worship the great artifact. What's the great artifact? Capital A? What's he referring to? It's the great artifact? The primary thing made? Yeah, the world, the primary world. The primary world is the great artifact, God's great artifact. And if you remember the context in Mythopoeia, he's talking about not having to, it's being okay to be a sub-creator. It's okay through art to be sub-creating new worlds. To say that that's inappropriate, to say all you can do is write realistic fiction, is in the terms he's using here to say we have to worship the great artifact to to to, to attempt even in even in even in fantasy to leave the primary world to to add to the primary world um, is wrong. Tolkien's counter to that is that's actually idolatry of the world. Human beings actually have authority, have rightful authority. To go past that. Now, they're compromised. They're weak. They are disgraced. They're flawed human beings. And even though their lordship, but, but even though their lordship is in rags, they still retain it. All right, so it's interesting that he's talking about lordship in a positive way in the poem. And that's the context in which he brings up the splintered light thing. Because, of course, why? Why is it that human beings have appropriate lordship? Because they are transmitting light from the original white light. Because they are splintered portions of that white light. Saruman is asserting lordship. Right? Asserting mastery. Asserting control. Rule. Order. Um, and that's, in that situation, exactly what shows what's so, what's so, so wrong. So wrong-headed about Saruman's move. Yeah, Jordan? Um, I, my personal theory on this is that Saruman's completing one with the idea of the one as a whole, with one as a number. He's saying one of many colors that's more than white, so that's better. And he's not realizing that the one that the white is is everything. It's the sum totality. It's the oneness, not the one. And he's saying, like, well, many colors is better than... White is just one color, is what he's saying. And that's not true. White is all colors. Right. So he thinks by making himself many colors, he's becoming superior to the original design. Right. In fact, he's breaking into little bits in order to get that many of them. He's making smaller bits out of one big thing. Right, exactly. Uh, Gandalf likes white better, not just due to his own particular aesthetic sense. Right? It's not just a fashion thing. White is superior to the many colors. That which looks like white, but when you look closely, isn't white. Is actually just the, the multicolors. By adding, he is not, in fact, added. He is subtracted. And by asserting his own desire for knowledge, I want to break a thing to find out what, what it is, Gandalf points out gently, he's not becoming more wise, he's becoming more ignorant. He's leaving the path of wisdom. Um, 
And I, I think that that's an excellent point. Marta, go ahead. Um, I was just thinking, he, he calls poor Radagast the brown a fool. Mm-hmm. Brown is also a mix of all colors. So, but it's, it's not as, as pure in, in <coughs> white, but it's, and Radagast I don't think is a fool. He's just simpler, and brown is simpler than white. It's funny how the, the colors kind of play into it. Yes, it is very interesting that none of our three wizards that we meet in this poem, uh, or in this poem, look at me, and how I teach poetry most of the time in this book are primary colors, even secondary colors, right? White, gray, and brown um, are all in their way kind of complicated from a color perspective. There are, let me say on a side note, and I'll have a little more to say about this right now, though it's a commonly asked question. Um, Saruman will refer later on to the five wizards, uh, and we only ever meet three of them. Um, Tolkien almost wrote almost nothing about the other two wizards. We will never meet them. They, uh, he says, traveled way off into the east of Middle-earth and were never heard from again. Uh, they were blue, so they are primary colors, which is interesting. The two absentee wizards uh, actually did have a primary color. Um, sometimes in his letters he speculates that maybe they were, they were a terrible failure. Sometimes he speculates that maybe they were really effectual. Uh, very little is known about them. The end. Anyway, um, one last thing that I would... One last sort of conclusion or application perhaps of this Saruman moment, and because we will come back to this with Saruman later, um, is his connection with, with knowledge. Uh, this passage seems to have application, some obvious application, not only to the kind of stuff that Tolkien talks about a lot in on fairy stories, like the advance of technology, advance as it's called, as Tolkien would say, but, um, but even with science in general. Um, I mean, this sounds like, you know, anti-dissection. I mean, have you ever had a science lab in which you did not break a thing to find out what it, what it is, right? I mean, it seems, it's, I mean, one question I think that is fair to ask here is by depicting Saruman the way he is, is Tolkien suggesting that scientific inquiry in itself is bad or at least suspect? What do you think? Rachel? <laughs> Maybe be more that even than just scientific inquiry. Like if you ask anyone to describe a tree to you, they would say there's a trunk and branches and leaves. But it doesn't have to be described that way. You could ask someone to describe a tree, and they could say, "Well, here are the birds that might live in it, or here's what it does when the seasons change." So I think just the entire way that most people in the Western world think about how the Earth is organized is a reductionist way of thinking of it, instead of. Considering that it is whole systems or as a whole, we like to break things down into pieces. Yeah, and thinking about it only in terms of pieces, especially if you don't think about it then in terms of the whole. Certainly when you're talking about trees, he's more interested in the tree and is always in his own writings and his own letters very quick to remind people that a tree is a living and growing thing. It's a, it's a, it's a being in its own. Um, and so certainly if through your scientific analysis of something like a tree... This leads you to lose sight of the fact that it is a, a living creature that you are talking about and looking at. That is something he will certainly become uh, pretty skeptical about pretty quickly. Good, Elise? I think it's also that he like talks a lot about Saruman's destructive nature and him like destroying the trees to you know build his army and you know dissecting things. He's not really doing it to for like good advancements, and I think Tolkien might have been more, 
against um, the destructive nature, like doing it not for helpful things, but just, just because. Yes. I mean, there is no question that um, if Saruman is connected with scientific inquiry in some sense, it is definitely bad scientific. I mean, what Saruman does is plainly bad, and there is no question. And the way that he applies it, I, I mean, again, it's hard not to be thinking of those passages in On Fairy Stories where he talks about how, you know, how, how industrialization and technology inevitably lead to bombs and to the, and, and even more broadly, uh, to the devaluing of living things. Um, and Saruman plainly illustrates that. Um, and I think that that's an important thing to remember. When Saruman is talking this way, it is plainly not simply abstract, theoretical, um, scientific inquiry. When he talks about valuing knowledge, it's not purely academic knowledge that Saruman is interested in. He is interested in applied knowledge and applied science and the way he applies them, deeply sketchy. Chantal? Yeah, I think what he's trying to say is that it's more a slippery slope than anything else because you can even start out... Um, looking at science benevolently, but that can that can still lead to bad things. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, you could start with a love of living things and a desire to know them and understand them better. That would be a good thing. Who could object? But it could quickly become um, something more. The dynamics of that can can change easily. Thinking about it as a slippery slope, I think, is a useful way. Marta? Um, well, actually, I, just the other day in my own science class, we, um, we had to take an oyster and, and rip it open to look at its guts and inside, and just so we could understand the way it worked. And I felt badly, and I think Tolkien would think about a situation like that. I don't need to know how, how the oyster works to appreciate that an oyster does work. And I think that's what he's saying about Saruman's scientific method. You can appreciate it and not have to destroy it. Yeah, yeah. Or certainly, if there's knowledge that can only be acquired by killing the thing, maybe, yeah, is it worth it? Is it worth it? What does it do to you? Perhaps you start off, I mean, again, thinking back in the term Chantel that you were, maybe you start off your inquiry with a love of oysters, right? And a desire to help and preserve the oysters. But mightn't the process of repeatedly killing the oysters change your attitude towards them? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's... And it's funny, whenever one talks this way, one begins to feel silly, or at least that other people might think that you're silly, like, oh, please, they're just oysters. But I, Tolkien is always very firm about living creatures. He talks about living creatures a lot. And if you're not exactly that desensitivity is one of the dangers, right? Um, I mean, this is why what he kept coming back to, and people are like, just trim that tree. Just, just remove those bushes. This is, a, this is not a moral choice. This is, like, this is aesthetic. This is a landscaping issue, right? And it's one of the things that he spoke out against most forcibly uh, in his sort of self-appointed role as defender of plants. You know, to remember, if you're going to cut down a tree... That's a serious decision. You know, I mean, this is a, you're asking, am I, should I or should I not kill this living thing? Um, and the people just are so desensitized to that that they don't even think about it in those terms. So I think that that's, that's one of the ways in which we can see, I think, potentially, um, someone, a, a scientist sliding down that slippery slope that Chantel described. Ben? I think the other thing that really 
takes out a storm log for scientific knowledge is he sees it as an end to itself. And I don't think Tolkien would ever think of it as something worthwhile just for its own reason. Um, rather, if you could preserve a forest by doing some scientific inquiry, then that's all fine and good. But again, be careful with your justification. Yes. And when you have a different end in sight, then you get back to the craft issue. And once you are dealing with craft, we have all of Thanor and all of the Silmarillion to look at for examples of how craft can be turned against you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, on the one hand, when we look at Saruman, as we were talking about last time, we can see clearly a means and ends problem, right? I mean, he's saying, oh, it's okay. We don't have to worry about our means. We'll just consider our ends. That is a sufficient problem and a sufficient indication that he is going wrong. But even if we just look at the ends, forget about the means. We just look at the ends. Knowledge, rule, order, where do we start? I mean, those are problematic ends. And Gandalf does not seem to be willing to agree, like, oh, yeah, I mean, agreed, we're both, you know, into knowledge, rule, and order. That's obviously the point of what we do, but let's talk about the means. That's not at all Gandalf's perspective. Knowledge as, a, as an end, as a goal? Rule as a goal? <sighs> That's awkward. Um, all three of those are problematic goals. I agree. But this is not the way to get to Lothlorien within 25 minutes. So uh, we, should, we should probably regretfully move on uh, because I still have one more thing I want to talk about about the Council of Elrond even before we get to the Misty Mountains, and that is the very end of the council and Frodo's volunteering uh, for the job. And I want to just draw your attention. I don't know if it jumped out at you, um, but the way that's described is, I think, very, very interesting and very conspicuous. This is at the bottom of page 263. Bilbo has just uh, suggested that they name some names so they can go and have lunch already. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes, as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him, as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that had been long foreseen and vainly hoped might after all never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words, as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. What do we notice there? What's important here? Kelly, go ahead. Um, he says um, it's as if some other will was using his small voice. You know, so it seems uh, very apparent that something else is acting through Frodo to achieve something great. Yeah, and we think about the beginning part of that in connection with that, right? He's looking. He has this sense that he is expected to speak up, but he looks around and there's nobody looking at him. The expectation that he perceives doesn't seem to be coming from anybody in the room. At least not obviously. Chantel? Um, I think it's inter- interesting that there's obviously this you know, other force at work and like almost like he's having an out-of-body experience. But never once does it sort of insinuate that it's not his own decision. Yes, I agree. Uh, you know, we've talked before about the complicated relationship between fate and free choice. This may be one of the single most interesting moments in regard to that. Does Frodo choose to take the ring? Does he merely fulfill his destiny? Is his will involved? Is his will not involved? Both, yes, it seems. Both, both are operative here. And Tolkien emphasizes both. Frodo does take it on himself. But, and he will talk about it that way later on. At no point later on is Frodo going to say, and, you know, dang it, I wish that 
I hadn't been possessed by whatever I was possessed by. I never wanted to be on this stupid thing in the first place. He looks back and it's like, you know, I, I, I took this upon myself. He thinks of it as his own will, even though at the time he feels like there's some other will operating on him as well. Brittany? Um, I find it really interesting that, like, throughout that paragraph, there's really no reason why he should. Yeah. This great dread, and he really wants to stay with Bilbo. But then he says... Yes. Good. And there we can see a, a very important contrast with uh, the, the ring rationalization. Right? If the ring were operating on him and on his will, he would be having all of these, oh, here is this plausible reason why you should do this, and here's another plausible reason why you should. Here he gets nothing other than this is the right thing to do. I don't want to. There are several reasons I don't want to do this, but I know compellingly, inescapably know this is the right thing to do. And that it feels, smells, tastes completely different from the way that the ring operates on wills. Elise? Well, Elrond also recognizes that something else yes. is working, not in favor for Frodo, but he says, I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, and that if you do not find a way, no one will. So even Elrond's aware of this um, other will that's yes. going on. Yeah. Frodo. Good. No, exactly. He, he's, you know, notice where he starts. If I understand a if I understand aright all that I have heard, right? He, he too has come to this conclusion, right? It's sounding to him like Frodo is the one who has been chosen. He doesn't use that word here, though again, he, he, he talks about them being called previously. This is the second time Elrond has sort of said there's something else, there's more going on here than what appears. Good. Brittany, go ahead. He also talks about like how if you take it freely and it's your choice. Yes. So he feels that it's, that's what it's supposed to be. It still is a choice. Yes, exactly. His response is not, you've been appointed, destiny is pointing to you, hence, you know, you're screwed and you have no choice in the matter. He, he does emphasize, if you take this upon yourself. His use of the conditional there is really fascinating. If you take this upon yourself, I will say. Um, yeah, yeah. He recognizes you still could say no even though it is obvious, it sounds like you perceive, and I certainly perceive, that you are being pointed to here. Ben? The other striking thing that he says is in the next paragraph, he says, but it is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another. And that whole, that whole idea when Frodo looks around and he doesn't see anyone looking at him, I kind of imagine everyone just sort of, everyone don't look at Frodo. <laughs> right. It's obvious <laughs> him, so but there's sort of this sense, there's a respect for that, that the fate has been levied on him, but no one can talk about it. It has to be, like, no one can even suggest it. No one can even kind of elbow him. Uh, Bilbo is as close as we get when he says, well, let's decide on someone already, and everyone already knows who the decision is about. Yeah, and Bilbo says afterwards, I was afraid that was going to happen <laughs> once they let me off, right? You were the only other logical candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Good. Jordan? Um, apparently my reading of it is kind of out there, but I'll put it out anyway. Which is that I thought the ring was acting on him, but in the ah. it was scared. It's been scared of Florida. Florida's beaten it every single time. Well, almost every almost. single time. <laughs> yes. Even when he was you to come to it on Weathertop, he beat the Morgan line. Yeah. That's yeah. scary to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm saying, stay with Bill. <laughs> 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 through this desperate effort of the ring. 
saying, you know, screw you, Wing. <laughs> it's, you know, it's possible. It's possible. I, now, I, the reason I hesitate is chiefly because I'm not sure. This implies a level of, of complexity, not only in the reasoning, but in the perception and understanding of the ring, which I'm not sure it possesses. And I'm not sure that we can prove that it possesses. Um, that is always before it has reacted essentially to immediate stimuli. The ring rates are near. Reveal me, reveal me, reveal me. Whereas, the, you know, if, if this were like, okay, now let's see, would it be advantageous or disadvantageous for this particular hobbit to carry me towards Mount Doom? Uh, really in balance, given what I know about Frodo and the, uh, the, the odds on the journey. I'm not, that, that, I'm not sure that the ring can parse all that. Um, it's possible. It's, it's possible. And it's certainly an attractive idea. Um, not, I'm not, that's why I'm not sold on it, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to kind of be open to it. Um, last point, we are at least going to finish the Council of Elrond today, uh, is the emphasis in that line uh, that he felt that some other will was using his small voice, and the emphasis on small there. Um, this is, of course, another big focus as, as Elrond, in his response, says this is the hour of the Shire folk. Right? He recognizes not only that Frodo in particular is being pointed at, but he also is perceiving the general trend here. Okay, so apparently this fate, this destiny, the, 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 the one who is actually orchestrating this story, Elrond is beginning to detect the themes of the story that are being orchestrated. I see that this job must be done by the weak instead of the strong. Um, and so he approves of this. We can see this. Uh, this comes up very strongly again later on. There were a couple, uh, a couple good posts on the forum about this. The choice to bring Merry and Pippin instead of others, right? You know, they've got seven people pretty easily. You know, they, 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 they make the list of the first seven pretty easily. I mean, those candidates are pretty easily gotten through. And then Elrond's like, hmm, I need to find two others. Who, who, who should they be? Like, oh, yeah, Merry and, Merry and Pippin. Let's, let's look around and see if I'd challenge you to find two less qualified people in all of Rivendell. I mean, if they scoured the countryside, they could not find two less competent people to send on this mission than, than these two. I mean, and, and especially, so, you know, Gandalf was like, well, why bother sending Gorfindel? And, of course, one could say, what would be the harm in sending Gorfindel? What's the downside of having like, this, like, super powerful elf before whom the, the ring raids flee in terror? You know... I can imagine a situation or two in which that might be handy. So, you know, like, it's... And, and, and Gandalf recognizes this. Um, I love the, uh, the, the, the phrasing that he uses. This is uh, at the beginning of the next chapter in 269. When he unexpectedly supports Pippin. I think, Elrond, that in this matter it would be well to trust rather to their friendship than to great wisdom. Then to great wisdom. I recognize that it is unwise to choose these two. That wisdom would say, choose Gorfindo or someone even halfway competent. But recognizing that that is what wisdom says, I, 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 I overtly suggest that we do the manifestly foolish thing here. I mean, that's, that's what he says there. Their friendship over great wisdom. And... This seems to show Gandalf also detects this trend. 
actually, you know, this mission is going to be much more likely to succeed the more small, useless people we have along on it. Because this is the hour of the small, useless people. <laughs> when they shall rise and accomplish great things. Hey, both of them, both Gandalf and Elrond, pick up on the trend of what's happening here. And of course, we will see. This, in fact, is going to pan out for them, Marta. Well, it's funny because, um, you know, we don't hear from Mary and Pippin until about the journey of the dark, that chapter, when uh, Pippin foolishly, I think, throws some... Yeah, throws the stone, his foolish stone, yeah. Being Gandalf, that's Right, exactly. You made your bed, Gandalf, now you got to lie in it, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, throw yourself in next time, and you'll be no further nuisance, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, uh, and of course... The irony goes further than that. Um, it is certainly implied that Pippin's throwing the stone down the well is what rouses the, the orcs and the Balrogs. So Gandalf's death is a direct consequence. If they hadn't brought stupid Pippin, which was Gandalf's idea, <laughs> then he wouldn't have died. So, I mean, it's at, at first, it seems like this decision has horribly backfired on Gandalf personally. Yet we'll see that this actually is going to pan out. You know, this is all this is all part of this is all part of the plan. Um, <laughs> so I had been contemplating when I was thinking about what to talk about today. I was like, do we just skip Karathras entirely? And at first, I was like, no, we can't do that. But now, yes, we're going to skip Karathras entirely. <laughs> Oh, look what we've got! Like the Bridge of Khazad Doom, we've got seven minutes. <laughs> what are we gonna do? Okay, okay. You're gonna have two minutes for Karathras. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> what is it? Is it a Maya? Good question. No idea. Karathras is a mountain. <laughs> and at first, when they personify Karathras, you know, when Gimli uh, speaks his piece, as Sam says, and talks about Karathras, you know, uh, was known as the cruel long before sound. And at first it's like, well, that's like a personification, right? What you mean is the mountain is, you know, very steep and dangerous. And so therefore, when people have tried to, you know, climb it or cross over this pass, many people have been harmed. And so therefore, by a kind of pers- a poetic personification, we are going to describe the mountain as cruel, Right. No, that doesn't, I mean, the more this goes on, the less that that seems to be the case. Uh, that it is not merely, uh, as to use the phrase Tolkien uses in The Hobbit, poetical exaggeration to talk about Karathras in this way. Um, Kelly and I are having a discussion about how useful Boromir is to the Fellowship. And one of the best part is uh, Aragorn was the tallest of the company. Yes. But the tallest. Yes. But Boromir, a little less in height, was broader and heavier. He led the way and Aragorn followed him. That's right. Aragorn followed him. Yes. Yeah. No, and I think this is, this is true. Later on, when, when Pippin is put in a place where he has to think of some good things to say about Boromir, he's going to come right back to the snow and be like, let me tell you about the time that Boromir was like, there was snow, man, and he just plowed through that snow. like no. Exactly. He was amazing, Boromir was. Yeah. No, sure. That's, this is uh, uh, definitely Boromir gets... gets Gets props for this. He's. I, I, I do like, though, that even he admits that lesser men with spades would have served you better uh, than studly me with my arms. But uh, it's one of the most humble things. Spades to be had at the mountain. One of the most humble things Boromir says. Um, but back to Karathras. 
Do you remember in The Hobbit when they climb up into the mountains whom they meet or almost meet? Remember that scene, that description? The giants, yeah. They're like giants throwing boulders. Um, and Thorin says that he's a little worried that one of the giants are going to pick them on and, um, and, 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 and use them for a football, meaning a soccer ball, of course, to us Americans. Um, so they, they seem to speak as if they're, you know, actual giants throwing rocks and, um, and we don't hear about the giants here anymore. In fact, in exactly the parallel situation, when boulders are now flying down over the party as they're climbing up the pass and they're hearing fell voices on the wind um, and Boromir says, let them call it the wind who will and Aragorn say, you know, the, and then Aragorn says, well, actually, I do call it the wind, but that doesn't make what you say wrong. Um, we seem to have exactly the same situation. What was described in The Hobbit as these stone giants are now, is now seem to be attributed to Karathras, generally, the mountain in particular. There are some things that are older than Sauron and have nothing to do with him, um, and yet don't love elves and dwarves and men, that there is, they speak as if there is indeed some kind of malevolent spirit, being, actual entity connected with this mountain. Going much further than this, we, we get highly speculative very quickly. We learn almost nothing about this. Um, but they do talk like there's an actual person there. Yeah? This might be totally off the mark, but could, it, could you compare the mountain to like the old man Willow? It's an interesting connection. I mean, Old Man Willow does, is like what they say about Karathras, ancient, independent of Sauron. He's not like an emissary of Sauron or something. Um, He's just someone who is there, someone who's been there for a long time, someone who is evil on his own steam, right, with no input from other people, so far as we know. so in that sense, I think we, there, there, there do seem to be some parallels. Of course, the difference, uh, the very significant difference, is that Old Man Willow is a tree, which is a living thing. Um, and as we learn, trees do, I mean, they do live and grow and appear to have some kind of sentience or to be able to develop some kind of sentience, whereas Carothas is a mountain. Um, and, you know, the th- theoretical... Uh, inanimate nature of the mountain would seem to suggest that it's not going to develop into a personality in the same way that a tree could develop into a personality. That seems a big obstacle. Um, but I mean, there's certainly there, there's some ways in which I like that. Uh, certainly the two of them, Old Man Willow and Karathras, seem to serve a kind of a parallel function in the story. <laughs> Moria, we're done. Thank you, Karathras. I would have felt bad totally skipping it. But anyway, Moria. What do you notice about Moria? It is dark. Yes. Yes. It's not a mine. Yeah, no, no, right. It's wealth is not in gold or jewels. Nope. No, which is good because they don't have any anymore. Um, 
Let's start with Gimli's song. Can we start with Gimli's song, 308, the song that Sam really likes? First off, notice the, I don't know, tone of this poem, that it starts off in the elder days. The world was young, the mountains green, no stain yet on the moon was seen. And progresses, the world is gray, the mountains old, the forge's fire is ashen cold, the darkness dwells in Durin's halls. Right? Um, so the, the, the direction is from the great old ancient world to the declining and decaying modern world. Um, this, of course, is a, an idea, a movement, which is not just a dwarf thing. This is not just Gimli. Um, the elves talk in exactly the same way. This seems to be, uh, <clears throat> this is a dominant way of understanding the world. This is how people who talk about the elder days usually talk about them. There are some noteworthy exceptions to this particular way to talk about old things and their relationship to new things. For instance, we might remember back once more to our friend Saruman, who speaks in exactly different ways, right? He talks about the old things. The old things, he agrees, are passing away, but he's looking towards the great new world, right? The old is passing away. The new is coming. And that's a little questionable. The, the way that Gimli is looking back through this song, the way that this song is looking back at the old things, is, but still the sunken stars appear in dark and windless mirror mirror. There lies his crown in water deep till Durin wakes again from sleep. There is a look to the future. It's not just a decline into nothingness. There is memory. Mirror, mirror. This lake, this pond, eternally reflects the stars that were above Durin's head in the moment he looked in it. That's, that's pretty interesting. Jordan, go ahead. Um, I found it interesting that after all, he and Legolas bicker with each other about elves and dwarves. His second stanza is all about praising elves. I found that amusing. Yeah. The world was fair, the mountains tall, in elder days before the fall, of mighty kings in Nogothrond and Gunlin, and now beyond, the western seas have passed away. The world was fair in Durin's day. Yeah, and presumably the elves are given some credit for helping the world to be fair. And Nogothrond and Gunlin were both elven strongholds. Yeah, yeah. You think they could say, you know, uh, in the days of Nogrod and Belagost, right? The, those those dwarven strongholds in in Beleriand. But no, no. I mean, so that's that's true. And of course, the context of this. One of the things that we are given. One of the things that that Moria um, recalls are, you know, and and is emphasized at the gate is those happier days back when there was concord between elves and dwarves and they were so there was so much peace and they were so unsuspicious that they put the password to the door carved right there on the door not carved but uh marked right there on the door um you know that it's so obvious that gandalf doesn't even think of it 
right? Because those days were different. So that, that uh, so, I mean, uh, Jordan, I agree with you. That contrast is really emphasized. And even Gimli does, Gimli does recognize it. Gimli does recall it, or at least recites this dwarven song, which does recall it. In this way, Moria, the abandoned, deserted Moria, is not only a memory of the, great, of the lost greatness of the dwarves, but it's of a peculiar kind of greatness. It's the loss, the, the, the ending of a time, the memory of a time when things were much more peaceful than they are now, of this, this great concord between elves and dwarves, between, one is tempted to say, even elves and dwarves. I'm so not doing the Bridge of Casa Doom in 60 seconds. I'm not even going to try. Um, <laughs> tune in next time when we will talk about the Bridge of Casa Doom. And then we will look at also Goadriel uh, and Celeborn. Oh, you know what? Goadriel and Goadriel's husband. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I will want to talk at the end about the significance, especially for those of you, which is most of you, who have seen the films, the significance between where this book ends, where volume one, uh, you know, where, where book two ends uh, compared to where the first film ends, because uh, it's a very important point. Have a good weekend. That's all we had time for today. Read through the end of The Fellowship of the Ring for the next class, in which I hope to divide most of my time between Goadriel and Boromir. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.